0: Ultimately, if you think about all of it, when people say, like, what's the Salesforce model? It was Salesforce trick, which was like, find a segment, subdivide that segment, focus your execution, you know, specialize your marketing, your sales, your product offering, your competitive, your training, and optimize the hell out of it.
1: The voice you just heard was the voice of our guest today, Brett Queener. And the podcast you're hearing right now is Operations, the show where we look under the hood of companies in hypergrowth. My name is Sean Lane. If you had to explain the genesis of software as a service to someone, there's a good shot you'd start your story by talking about Salesforce.com. If you Google top SaaS companies today, chances are you'll find Salesforce very close to, if not at the top of the list. So it should come as no surprise to you that for this show, we wanted to learn from those who have been there, done that from within the walls of Salesforce. Today, we have that opportunity in a conversation with Brett Queener, who spent a decade at Salesforce from 2003 to 2013 as an operations executive and also later ran specific product lines like Data.com and Marketing Cloud. Now, Brett spends his time today as venture partner at Bonfire Ventures, and his specialty kind of lives at the intersection of product and go-to-market. So today, he's gonna help us navigate that intersection. He drops so much knowledge in our conversation. So if you've ever had to put together a go-to-market strategy, or you've second-guessed if you had the right number of reps on your team, or you're just a Dr. Seuss fan, you're gonna wanna listen to this one all the way through. Before we got too deep, I asked Brett to set the scene for me of what Salesforce looked like when he joined in 2003.
0: I joined Salesforce, I think we were doing I don't know, maybe 10 to 15 million in revenue, okay. uh, which we now call recurring revenue. Mm-hmm. Although some portion of it I think it was month to month, so it wasn't clearly contract <laughs> CMRR at the time. So very small. We probably had, oh, I don't know, 10, 15 sales reps and had just started what we called the enterprise experiment with hiring a few reps um, outside San Francisco. There were over 30 in the field. So, super, super small. And at that time, you know, what was interesting about Salesforce was there was no SaaS playbook. There were no Mm. podcasts like this. (laughs) Um, There was no model for how you built, you know, a SaaS go to market machine. And you have to understand, for those that have some gray hair, part of 2003, software was sold in the following three ways. You had clunky enterprise software that you had enterprise reps, and you flew on corporate checks and you tried to close deals. If you did, you made the quarter. If you didn't, you had layoffs. On the middle end, uh, it was sort of sold over the phone. It was somewhat easy to buy. And then third was through a channel or VARs, uh, whether that would be at Fry's and was package wrapped or, you know, through Microsoft VARs or IBM VARs, et cetera. There was never a company prior to Salesforce that thought about selling direct one piece of software, albeit in different packages, to every buyer along the spectrum from a five person startup to a 50,000 person enterprise. And that was what we were trying to crack and understand.
1: Yeah. And and now we have, you know, behind the cloud, that takes us through every single one of those plays, but when you don't have the playbook and you're starting to grow from, you know, whatever you said, 15, 20 reps. And then I saw on your LinkedIn that in those first couple of years you were there, you were getting up into like 250 reps by 2005 without a playbook. How are you balancing this idea of this really aggressive growth with what you think the right capacity is for the number of reps that you need to hit that growth?
0: Sure. I mean, I would think one thing that I tell companies that I advise or I invest in, there's sort of there are two there's there's there are two numbers that matter in terms of employees, uh, three numbers that matter in terms of scale, which is how many devs are you hiring and how many AEs are you hiring, and you know. I was not either of those two, so sorry. But if you're not a dev or you're not an AE, you're an other. But you know, that's <laughs> the driver of innovation. That's the driver of Absolutely. ACV. And here's a magic number. Um, I stun people when I ask them, when I tell them this. But at least 20% of your employees should be quota-carrying AEs. Those are sort of magic numbers. And so we knew that, look, If we ever got to the point where we felt like we couldn't hire AEs, we want to hire all these other resources, we sort of redoubled back and said, look, clearly we're not making the AEs we have productive, or we're not focusing in the right area. So before we go add money elsewhere, let's tackle this challenge. But in terms of a playbook, I think the, the key playbook that we thought about from a Salesforce perspective, and this is sort of the guidance that I use in working with companies, is really thinking about what segment of market, you know, as you're trying to find market fit, we obviously had some fit. And, you know, to be fair, at Salesforce, we had one pretty amazing differentiation. Now, granted, back then, there were people that in IT that were thinking the cloud was their enemy because it was going to replace jobs, but it was pretty differentiated, right? It was software that people might use. You pay as you go, in theory. And remember, back before Salesforce, when we upgraded your software, you didn't have to bring an SI in to reimplement it, right? You, your all of your customizations were pushed from quarter to quarter with releases. Because you remember, before that, innovation was scary, right? Because then you'd have to reimplement what you have. So, I, I, and there. we could hire we could hire twenty twenty year olds who would for fifty k would work like ten hours a day, uh, right? <laughs> so it was a little different, right? San Francisco was a lot cheaper back then. At the time. But the way to think about it is we just went to the board a lot, you know, and did a lot of two by twos and three by threes. But ultimately, we would try to figure out um, what were our segments, what were we seeing, and then within those segments, how could we optimize the elements of our, you know, go-to-market playbook to be more effective there.
1: At that time in Salesforce's evolution, Brett told me that those segments were largely driven through inbound demand. Salesforce went where the demand was, selling mostly to small tech companies without a lot of budget. But over time, those segments started to shift, and the offerings shifted with them.
0: If you really think about what Salesforce did masterfully in the end, other than at some point emerging, but it's interesting, it was really sort of understanding each market segment. It where there was potential demand for its product, and sort of sub-segmenting um, its resources and focus and tailoring the marketing approach, the sales resources, the product offering, the pricing and packaging we brought to that, to optimize to get the most sort of output or yield as investment in that space. And you know, a one approach across all segments doesn't work. And I think Salesforce did an amazing job for that. And the lens you and I talked about before um, that I speak to, as you're trying to find market fit and you're trying to understand your business, is what I call the tool versus app versus platform markets buyer value proposition. Yeah, I think this is interesting. Right? Can you, you take think people about, through those? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, Sure, if you think about it, what did Salesforce start at? Salesforce started as an individual rep for like 29 bucks a month with their credit card, could go online and track their deals as a tool for them. And if you think about what Salesforce is today with the app exchange and the fact that you tried to replace Salesforce with something else, you've got to rip 15 apps out with it. it's a platform. I mean first and foremost Salesforce is your on-demand cloud platform. Yes, it's got the CRM data and the rest of it, but so much of your of your business and other applications and critical processes are tied into it. So when I when I talk to people, it's really important to me to think through tool versus app versus platform. And why do I think about that? You know, it's interesting talking to you guys in Drift and how you guys are trying to change, you know, going away from lead forms and just letting people to converse the way that they want to converse. Although I just dropped my daughter for college and she hasn't responded to <laughs> two or three texts. So maybe I maybe maybe I need to create yeah, a landing we can page.
1: your communication um, mediums you know, Yeah, with maybe
0: I maybe I need some <laughs> landing pages and some retargeting. But um, but it's so funny, right? Because if you think about so much of like selling, you know, if you're sales operations or sales enablement, the rest of it, you'll know what I'm saying. But, you know, you bring in the blue sheet, pink sheet, Miller-Hyman, value, vision, barry Ryan, et cetera, which is this whole prospect of like value selling and getting the buyer into your mind and changing the way they think mm-hmm. and asking discovery questions where you ask the magic three questions for which if they say yes, you uniquely know you have the product capability doesn't have So you've got them in the trap, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's also all predicated on BATNA or SIFT, which we know is a joke, right? Because like the people that go to your website and fill out lead forms or talk to you via Drift, like they don't have power. They may not have budget today, but they're smart and they're investigating and they're not. And this this whole idea, I say is a waste because in today's world, I think a buyer is well informed. I think they have no time for 30 discovery questions. They know exactly what you're trying to do. And you're just going to create unnecessary friction. I'll give you an example. I was talking to a company that by all external metrics is killing it. It's on its way to being a unicorn. But they have one product. It's very complex, but it's great and powerful. And they're trying to sell it down market against a competitor that has a very simplistic product that isn't that useful. And they're trying to get 2x the price because they're trying to sandwich much better it is. But it's just, and for mine, I just tell them, well, that's Hmm. dumb, right? You've got an SMB buyer who's just looking for a tool, who doesn't want an app or a platform. And so you're misaligning kind of the resources you're bringing to bear. And so what I like to think about is bring the appropriate level of complexity that the buyer is willing to have, and whether that's product complexity, whether that is sales process complexity, uh, whether that's pricing and packaging complexity. like Bring the appropriate level of complexity that the buyer is willing to have or deal with at the appropriate you know, tool app or platform segment, and I think you'll remove a ton of friction. And I think you'll, you'll do a lot better in those segments.
1: Brett already said it twice, but I'm going to say it again anyways bring the appropriate level of complexity that the buyer is willing to have. So then that begs the question, how do you make sure you correctly assess where your product belongs in Brett's model? How do I make sure I don't mess up whether I've got a tool versus an app versus a platform?
0: You know, I think you generally start as an application or as a tool, and I think you generally, to some extent, are thinking about the segments that you're in and sort of what you're seeing as natural velocity points. And so what I talk about is, what I think about is, look, a tool tends to be, unless you're Slack or Atlassian or it's not a product that's bought, it's not a product that's sold; it's bought. Generally, it's an SMB segment. It starts in an SMB segment. It, it generally, your demand tends to be inbound. The sales cycle tends to be relatively transactional. Um, you tend to be talking to a few people in an organization. It's a fewer conversations, and it's quickly getting to a okay. What's the price, and can I afford this? And does seem fair? That tends to be more of a tool, mm-hmm. right? As you start moving, and you know when you think about that. The key that I like, people ask Brett, what do you do and what's your what's your value and all this kind of stuff? I try to explain that I like the intersection of product and go-to-market. And so in the tool world, you know, the product better be pretty simple to understand. It probably needs to be trialable. No SI or you know extensive services needs to be needed. Like there shouldn't be a sales engineer in sight, right? Like if there's a sales engineer On a product that's a tool, you've messed, you know, AA run, you've done messed up somewhere, right? Your CAC isn't going to work. And
1: and in terms of your point about complexity, you have mismatched those categories, right? All of a sudden, it's way more complex. You
0: missed the boat completely. Yeah. And then on the demand side, like, this has to be inbound, right? Like, I have companies that I work with that have gotten to large amounts of AR and at some point realized, like, you know what? this cac and this S&B segment isn't great. And, and I go, well, why is that? What, you get a lot of inbound? No, I got one or two SDRs for every rep. And I'm like, oofa. Wow. Uh, you know, so, you know, you if you can't have legions of SDRs dialing outbound at s right? Something is sort of inefficient and the rest of it, you know, that SDR is somebody who's going to be more effective moving up market as you're going, what I call the app buyer, who's going to be tend to spend more money or the platform buyer. So, I think when you, depending on your stage, when you start out, I think you kind of understand, like, is my core value proposition something that's relatively easy to be understood quickly? Or is this something that I need to kind of go and explain and sell? And I think in my mind, that's the clear delineation a little bit between tool and an application. Whereas a tool, your salespeople to some extent are helping people buy because the value proposition is pretty clear they can see it. And when you get to app, like it needs to be sold a bit, right? And then when you get to platform, well, you got to go find 30 people to sell to and you got to you know, deal with all the enterprise I can or I can't, right? And then you need like the SOC 2 and the, you know, the pen test done, you know, before you get a deal done, right? And then there's, you know, calling the CFO or CEO, or CEO last <laughs> day of the quarter and trying to get your buyer to call. You know, we know that that's, right. that feels like the platform buy.
1: I love the way Brett breaks this down. I also know, though, that for many of you who are inside of hyper growth companies, once you've identified which bucket you're in today, you might want to later understand the transition between those different buckets and whether or not, let's say, for example, you could be both in the tool and app buckets at the same time.
0: I think you could be in both buckets at the same time, but you need to make the appropriate mm. investments in terms of what's yielding. You know, I think the challenge of only staying in one bucket unless you're basically saying, I never want to hire salespeople. It's a self-serve product. And it's wonderful. Then you live in that tool space right. and you dominate that tool space. Right. But if you have an evolution to go up market or if your market naturally, if there's opportunity, you know, for Salesforce, it was like there was no other on-demand players. It was they were forced to use shitty cloud software. So there was plenty of market opportunity. But. As you moved up market, the demands and needs were different. They wanted to customize. Remember, when I joined Salesforce, we had four tabs. There was no API. There was no dashboards. I think there was a couple reports. You couldn't change the name of any fields, and there were no third-party applications. Right? There was no forecasting, no PRM, no et cetera. Right? Like, but, but that met the need of an individual rep or team of reps to be successful. Because remember, nobody was logging in and using these on-premise CRM systems. So you can be in both markets. But what I think you have to tie that to where you are in your, in your evolution. If you're early on and you're starting a company and you've done seed funding and A funding, you simply can't afford right. to try to do three segments because, one, you don't have the money and resources to put enough in any of them such that it will yield anything meaningful. And, and, two, that won't help you in understanding sort of initial market fit. You know, I think you have some initial market fit as a platform or an app and a tool buyer, and then you have to figure out which yeah, way a, am I going, right? Am I, plat- am I an app player going to be platform? Am I a platform? Am I an app buyer thinking, well, this is good, but the product's too complex, and I think there's an opportunity down market, and maybe I can be a tool? Or am I a tool buyer where I think there's an app opportunity, but how do I do that without losing the beauty of my tool business? Do you know what I mean? So early on, I try to get people to kind of focus in one area that speaks, if you will, to their core value proposition of what they think they're buying up front. And I think that's important because if you try to serve all three markets, then your product's a mess. Like the, for those that have kids, there's a book called, um, if I had duck feet, it's a, and it's a it's it's a Dr. Seuss book where kids like, if I had duck feet I could go through a pond. If I had, mm. you know, tiger claws, I could do this, and if I had an elephant nose, I could do this. And then he was like, No, I have an idea. What if I had all of them? And then what happens is the the town calls him a mini witch what who and they throw him in jail because they don't know what he is. So then he decides he just wants to be himself at the
1: end. So any right? of your comp- no, no, that's perfect. Uh, so any of your companies that. that you're talking to, if they are a mini witch what who, then that's a problem. As a quick aside. I went and found this children's book. It is, in fact, by Dr. Seuss, and it's called I Wish That I Had Duck Feet, and it's awesome. If you don't want to read it yourself, someone will literally read it to you on YouTube. Seven minutes of your life. Highly recommend. Anyways, at this point, I'm just furiously taking notes as Brett takes me to school planning out these different go-to-markets. And naturally, as an ops person, my mind started to wander to metrics. But once again, Brett set me straight about the dangers of metrics without the context of the segment itself.
0: Metrics are meaningless unless we know like what market we're serving, right? You know, I have a company that I've worked with that has AEs that sell SMB, mid market, and enterprise. Sounds weird, It right? Doesn't make any sense, right? So, a big thing we did at Salesforce because what you'd find is if you had a sales rep that had a segment that included very transactional buyers that were inbound and easy, and larger buyers they have to go after, they would sub-optimize. For whatever was easier to make their number, which if a rep didn't optimize for making their number get into the comp they should be fired. Right? That means they can't read the comp So, so you're so what happened is if there was a bunch of inbound. They would go do that and never go outbound, and we'd, lo- and we'd ignore that segment. Or if there was a couple big deals they were working on, thought they could bring it in, and maybe they had monthly accelerators because they were an SMB comp plan but had mid-market deals, they would ignore all the inbound. The inbound would wait for five days to get back because somebody was busy doing deals. So you can understand it's just a mess. So, and you know, I'm sure you see it Drift, et cetera, et cetera, you know, the salesperson who's doing the assisted buying tool sale is dramatically different than the, you know, enterprise account executive that's got a six-month sales cycle they're wired differently they think differently and so like not only is it unfair to like have contact switching within a rep to go through that conversation and not only does it make you not align for any given section well there's no way to like enable that rep train that rep support that rep and there's no way to pay that rep appropriately so what i'm getting to now is look have the right product offering for the segment you're in or segments, figure out the right demand model. And then like, let's figure out how we start to specialize from a sales world perspective. And, you know, the one thing Salesforce did, and I think Oracle had done to some extent was, you know, it built, if it will, this this machine. Right? It built this machine that allowed us to take young kids out of colleges, inbound SDRs, go to outbound SDRs, go to VSB BS, reps, to SMB reps, to mid-market reps, to GP reps. Whereas if you look at I think, I think the head of America's, all of the America's enterprise field business today for Salesforce, which is probably, I don't know, what is that, a $5 billion business, an $8 billion business, uh, was an SDR at my boot camp that I trained, uh, the first boot camp I ran in 2003. So, so now if we have some level of specialization, metrics can actually make sense, right? Because when I see people tell me, oh, my lead conversion rate is this, or my opportunity close rate is this, or my ASP is this, or my sales cycle is this, and give me that number in aggregate, I just look at them and I go, that tells me nothing.
1: Brett said over and over again that the Salesforce mantra was specialize and focus, specialize and focus. With all of these segmentation and specialization lessons in mind, we turned our attention to arguably the hardest component of a go-to-market plan, the humans. How many salespeople do you need? Do you know which skill sets you need for which segment? And what ramps and quotas should look like? Get your notepads ready.
0: Once we have some level of segments, then we can start looking at performance, right? And I basically, I try to keep it simple, right? This is not an algorithm. It doesn't require AI. Um, I basically have two I have two questions I ask people. Okay. Which is for the AEs, the account executives we have in a given segment, assuming you have sales execs, are we achieving the desired level of quota achievement? And I'll I'll get a little more to that. Okay. And if you are not, or you want more, right? You know, like as if you are, then you're like, okay, you either have too far you have too few reps or you're you're or your quotas are too low. And that's always the good problem. They don't need, you know, like the company's like, I'm crushing my quota number and the rest of it. They don't really, you know, I, I get out of their way, right? There I'm like, you need to hire more. You need to hire more reps, hire more reps, hire more reps, hire more reps, mm-hmm. right? Raise your quota. But generally, if they're not, generally in a given segment or they want to do better, I ask them, is it an issue of, do you have enough quality at bats or do you have an inability to close them? Because ultimately, that that's right. what it comes those
1: are your two down. lovers.
0: That's it. Right. I mean, so and then on the, the first question on the quota, the only thing I say about are you achieving your level of quota? I can't tell you the number of younger executives who like, so, well, wow, I've closed one deal. It was a million dollar deal. So my deals are all a million dollars. So I'm going to hire reps. I'm going to pay them 150K. They're going to have a two million dollar quota. And I only need like four reps to get to like 10 million bucks. And I was like, oh, boy, oh, boy. <laughs> oh boy. Okay. So, or the other one where, how about your ramp? Why well, have an enterprise rep. And when they walk in, they're going to have no pipeline. They have a six month ramp, but in month three, they'll do 25%. Month four, 50. In month six, 75. And, and they'll hit a hundred percent in month six. And then they'll come to a board and be like, we heard those four reps were came off a of plan. And I'm like, are you for a camp plan because the people have gotten a full ramp or there was actually there, nothing closed between month three and month five because there was no pipe and it's a nine-month sales cycle? They're like, yeah, that. I'm like, okay. <laughs> so, so my point is might be off have, it, a, yeah. have a realistic ramp. Like if you have an enterprise rep, let's be clear. Let's not be greedy. Unless you've figured out something I haven't figured out, there's a rule of four to one. Unless you have an amazing inbound business, generally you're going to pay somebody one quarter their quota. So if they're making a million bucks, you might have to pay them two fifty a plan, mm-hmm. right? Um, for inside businesses and the rest of us more inbound, you can pay them less. But you know anything, anything you're paying them more than that, then you're going to be off from a magic number perspective. And look, enterprise reps out generally they ramp it takes at least six months to ramp. Okay, inside reps, you know three and maybe you know GB somewhere in between. But let's just be conservative from a ramping perspective. And a general rule of thumb that I use, and we used at Salesforce, and Mark was amazing with this, he'd say, how many reps do you have? And we'd be like, well, I got this many ramped or not ramped. He's like, I don't really care. How many reps do you have? I'll have this many reps. He goes, okay. Let's say, let's say we had 40 reps. He'd right. go, okay. You have 40 reps? Okay. He'd go, 40 reps. Okay, we're going to book $6 this quarter. What do you mean? He goes, it's 50 a man. What do you mean 50 a man? It's 50 a man. Yeah, but I don't know SDRs and marketing and the ramping, and then he's like, "Yeah, I don't really care. It's fifty k a man." So generally within a segment, and that was his
1: way of setting the goal, or that was his way of forecasting. This is what we're actually going to do.
0: Well, this was his way of telling us, "Keep hiring more AEs. <laughs> Got it making, he's basically saying was like, at a minimum, we need to do 50 K a man. If we do more, great. We do less, less. And it was a way of, it wasn't perfect, but from a math perspective, when you got to a segment, if you were doing more than 50 K, keep hiring and optimizing. If you're doing less than 50 K, stop hiring and fix something, which was interesting, right? Because one of the big challenges that the companies that you sell to the companies I work with is the following. They get to some level of excitement. Things are going pretty well blah, 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 and they, and they tell the board they've got to figure it figured out, and they raise their B round, or their C round. Go hire yeah, 15 reps.
1: Hire, a bunch of more reps.
0: hire a bunch of reps, including at segments we're not in. Then we hire 15 reps, and we realize that we don't really know how to create pipe for them, and then they don't make their number, and then everybody's sad. And then everybody gets on Glassdoor and it says, company, we're not winning anymore. They've cut back <laughs> on the snacks, the kombucha is not as good as it was, and the company flames out, right? It flames out like it's six months because we have sad reps. Like, so everyone's worried about that. But you don't get to like, oh, I'm only going to hire the reps when I have enough pipeline sitting here ready for them. You know, like that's – Right. You know, when that,
1: that gets back to the balance we, we talked about at the very beginning, right, of that growth versus the capacity.
0: Yeah. And so this 50K rule of thumb was if you're doing more than 50K per man in a segment, keep hiring. And if you're doing less in a segment, go figure out what's going on. And do wrong. you think, and do you think that – like? You know so many different mu- numbers, so many different metrics
1: anybody could look at, but do you think that is the way to just oversimplify this whole thing? Hey, what's our productivity per rep? Okay, keep going, or okay, we gotta stop and figure something out.
0: yeah, I mean, if you think about it, it's just a math that <laughs> summarizes all of the complex answers I've been giving you, right? I tried to keep them simple, but yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. an interesting one, and he was always and he was always right.
1: So once you have figured out how many of each type of rep you're going to need, which, by the way, is a Herculean effort in and of itself, Brett told me then it's time to take a look at things like average sales price. And from there, there's really just two key metrics he cares about, opportunity close rate and opportunity win rate. Now, if you were like me, were thinking, aren't those the same thing? Think again.
0: The two calcs that I use is one, opportunity close rate. Which starts with a concept of accepted opportunities. And this is where I talk to my friends at Outreach and Sales Loft and the rest of it and all the SDRs. They've made this in serious decisions and in inbound marketing. Like, no one knows what like a real opportunity is anymore. <laughs> but, uh, but assuming we know what a real opportunity is, where we think that this is an accepted opportunity, right? and it's not cherry pick because the rep only want to works so with what's perfect but and it's not an opportunity because the, the reps have no problem accepting the SDR's opportunities because the SDR's are confident sure. accepted opportunities and there's no downfall yep. you know we all that stuff agreed
1: upon definition
0: and, and for accepted opportunities in a given period a quarter i looked at which of those did we win closed win divided by which of them did we lose to a competitor and which of them did we lose to no decision plus closed one, right? So the numerator is what did we win, and the denominator is the sum of what we won plus what we lost to a competitor and what we lost to no decision. That gives me sort of the close rate, right? And if that is like less than 33%, we got a problem somewhere, right? Because I don't like telling marketing SDRs or pipeline, you need to go create more than 3X pipeline to hit our number. Because if you do, there is a level of inefficiency somewhere in your value prop, your market opportunity, your differentiation. Right. And that's that's the lever that might So be one missing. I start
1: with some. real quick on the on that equation, are, are when you you're very specific about the things that you're saying why you lost. Are are there are there categories of closed lost opportunities that you're purposefully not including there or are you just basically saying okay, these are typically the two major buckets of closed loss?
0: Well, these are the two buckets that they okay. have okay. to fall
1: into. I didn't know if you were either, excluding like either, something either, on
0: purpose. Either it, no, no, I'm not. Either a, deal went, either a deal was done, somebody bought something, mm-hmm. right? It was from us or somebody else, yeah. or they decided not quo. to buy it. anything. So, and then the other count that I use is opportunity win rate, which is closed one divided by closed loss plus closed win, where I get rid of lost no decision. And that tells me how well I am against competitors. And I want that to be north of 55 66%. Like when a deal goes down, I got to at least win one out of two. And if I'm dominant, I got to win at least two out of three. And where I'm not, I can look at per competitor, per segment to understand yeah. something. And I, else. and I really think
1: so, first of all, I completely agree. I think looking at that competitor piece on its own is really valuable. I also think looking at the, the no decision one, particularly in the case where that Salesforce was in at the time and what Drift is in now, in terms of you're, in addition to winning a deal, you're also. Both in, in both instances, I think, trying to convince someone to do something that's different from what the typically ex- accepted, like, quote unquote, best practice at the time was, right? And so I think that's another interesting component of those no decisions is how good of a job are we doing at actually laying out the value of this new, new thing, this new ask that we're making of our buyers? Because it's not just like, hey, you've got this thing, we want to replace it and put it, something new in its place. It's, hey, you have nothing here. And we want to put something in to fill that void.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, unlike Salesforce, like there weren't seven other firms calling the right. same buyer trying to sell them something, right? So the issue you have now with the prolific adventure and the, the SaaS economy and SASTER is your right. buyer is just getting pummeled, right? And so the way I look at the entire sales process, initially you're having conversations or some interest. Either they called you or you called them or whatever it is. And you need to move from a conversation to can we get a funded project here? to buy something new, to replace what I'm using, et cetera. And then, if, can I, will they, will I get them to select me as the vendor for that funded project? If you really at a high level breakdown, like the buying sales process, that's how I think about it. And so um, that lost no decision generally means we did a really poor job of uh, moving from that conversation to funded project side. We either had happy years and there was no funded project be made, or we did a poor job of creating it generally is what that means.
1: Before we go, as always, we're going to ask our guests the same set of lightning round of questions. Ready? Here we go. What is the best book you've read in the last six months?
0: The best book I have read in the last six months It is, I'll tell you the book. I'm I'm terrible with words. The Japanese writer, Kazuo Ishiguro, the book was, give me one second. I'm 48, so I don't remember this stuff as well. (laughs) It was called The Buried Giant. It was the best book I read in the last six months. The Buried Giant? Yes, uh, by Kazuo Ishiguro, who won the... He won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, Nobel Prize. He's a noble, he, he won the Nobel Prize, Cool. I, th- I think, for Remains of the Day. All right, I'll uh, have to check out. out. Amazing novel, amazing novel.
1: Cool, all right. Favorite part about working in operations?
0: Uh, seeing scale happen. So much of SaaS and software business is a slog. Mm. You work hard and the rest of it, you put a dollar in, you get a dollar out. You get up, you put a dollar in, you get a dollar out. And when you start to see scale, and momentum, where somebody is putting in a dollar or a unit of effort and getting $2 or two unit or if it's better, that's a magic moment. And so when you see that happening, it's it's palpable, and it's very exciting.
1: That's a great answer. How about the least favorite part about working in ops? I guess maybe the alternative of what you just said.
0: <laughs> for me, uh, look, I love operations. I love, I love being operational. <sighs> uh, for me, there is a time when you don't have an answer and if you're an operator and you're type A, you're fine with bad answers. You're fine with bad news. You You love good news. But not being able to understand why you're underperforming in a given segment as an operator drives you crazy. It keeps you up at night.
1: Yep. Somebody who impacted you getting the job you have today.
0: I made a decision two years ago to... Interesting decision, but to spend the last two years of my kid's high school career in a non-operational role, helping sort of product manage them into the college process. Uh, My my wife was very smart. She said, your two most important products (laughs) are two and three years away from GA and they're going to fail at launch. You've launched a lot of companies, a lot of people, a lot of careers. Why don't you focus the ones that are most important? No, the great irony for those that have kids, spending a lot of time with your kids the last years of high school when they want nothing to do with their dad is very interesting. (laughs) And so they inspired me to do that. Um, And so not being full-time operational, they would disagree, like visiting 36 schools, applying to getting into 13. Oh my gosh and then deciding of the You've got four, a whole new funnel to manage. They would I got I this cause process is easy if you just do it yourself. But no, it then said what do I want to do with my time and they wanted to make sure I was out of their hair frequently. And so uh, being an investor advisor and venture capitalist uh, gives me the freedom to spend time with companies on their time and mine and be helpful. And so I would say they've influenced me the most in that decision.
1: Awesome. And last one for you. One piece of advice for people who want to ha- have you know, a career in ops uh, similar to the one that you've had.
0: So much of ops now can get relegated to installing the, what I call the go-to-market stack. Whether it's Drift or HubSpot or Salesforce and Outreach, like it's like installing 10 or 15 tools and we put a lot of tech at play. Is part of the ops role mm-hmm. right and we're supposed to automate process and i would start i would tell ops people to start first with what are the que- what are the three to five questions we're trying to answer and if we had an answer for it we would know what levers to pull and that should guide your role that should guide the tools that you buy that should guide the metrics that you're looking at um, that should guide the slides that you prepare for the board each week. Start there first and work back from there. Um, often, what I see is people have created a jumbly, jumbly mess. There's all these processes and tools and apps, and no one actually can understand what the actual question is. Right. And so, so much of what we talked to for the last year had nothing to do with technology. Over mm. I mean, the last hour, it was right. about like, how do we measure business? How do we know what we're doing? How do we optimize around it? Okay. Then let me go put the processes. And stuff in place. The other advice I would have from an ops perspective is there's no one defined ops role. Um, The one at Salesforce that we defined was whatever it took to make sales to hit our ACV goal. So it actually included not only sales planning, sales strategy, pricing, and packaging, it included product field, product marketing, it included uh, competitive on top of all our administrator data cleaning and the rest of it, which was and included training to make sure I understood not only a planning model, what we were executing, and then how are we assisting, what was the sales process we were coming up with, and then what was the set of material we were assisting and analyzing uh, the sales teams with. But, you know, there isn't one defined role from an ops perspective. I define it as the guiding force that creates repeatability and scale in achieving uh, the company's ACV and then at some point retention metrics.
1: That's it. That's all we got for today. A huge thanks to Brett for stopping by and dropping so much knowledge on us in this episode. If you want to hear more from Brett, he's published a series of LinkedIn articles about go to markets and planning out your sales stages that are super helpful and very relevant to the conversation that we just had. So check those out. Also, stay tuned for future episodes where we're actually going to talk to some folks who were at Salesforce just after Brett left and talk about how planning and putting together an annual plan changed after Brett left when you're dealing with 4,500 reps. Uh, So stick around for future episodes with those interviews. And last but not least, thank you to all of you for tuning in. Really appreciate all the feedback and the support since the show has launched. If you have ideas of things you want us to cover, you have guests you want us to have on, please, please, please reach out, shoot me a LinkedIn message, tweet at me, Send me your feedback so we can continue to make the show better. And as always, if you're feeling so inclined, leave us one of those six-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Six-star reviews only, please. All right, that's going to do it for me this week. See you next time.